When God speaks to us, it's always a promise. The very act of Him saying something into the world, into our ears, into reality itself, is always a promise. So in that sense, it's nothing like our speech with each other. Because when God speaks, it's never just incidental. It always describes reality. It creates reality. This is why any interaction with God that we have, any interaction in prayer, in discernment, in worship, in relationship with each other, in encounter with the supernatural, any interaction we have with God is to touch covenant. It is to touch the promises that God makes to reality itself, to the universe, which bind it together. The world is held together by God's will for it to be held together, by His spoken word. And in Jesus, the touching of God's reality-shaping words, his, it, the touching of covenant itself is now covenantal love. Because of Jesus, in Jesus, any word spoken is a promise. It is a covenant. And now, because of him, if you are in Christ, it is a covenant of love over you. It is always for your good, never for your judgment or destruction. And when God makes covenant, you've got to follow, there's a logic here. When God makes covenant, it, it is meant to extend into time. So every time he speaks, it is covenant. And every time, every covenant that he makes extends into time, before us and after us. In other words, whatever God says to you is a promise, and that promise exists before he said it, and it lasts into tomorrow. Because he is not a man that he would change his mind, the prophet said, uh, Psalm 33, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. In that sense, God doesn't just speak into time. Every time he speaks, his, his word, which is a promise, bursts through the confines of time. And so every time you see the word, I mean, I mean if, you look, if you look in the Old Testament, for example, almost every time you see the word or the concept of promise or covenant, it is attached very nearby, you will see this word, generation. Generations. Every time we're trying to think about promise or covenant, there is this attachment to the idea of generations. To know God, to hear Him, to discern Him at work in us and around us, for us, for the world, is to know a covenantal commitment to not just people, not just individuals, but generations. So try to wrap your mind around this. You're in, your prayer, you're in a time of prayer, and you hear God say something to you like, I love you, I forgive you, I want to use you for something. 
Now what you need to do is understand that that very personal word, that very personal revelation, if you really understood who was speaking to you, you would understand that it bursts the confines of time and space. That that thing that he's saying to you cannot actually just be for you. It must also somehow apply to reality itself as an expression of himself to all generations. When we pray to an eternal person, when you hear something, discern something, even when we just read the scriptures, there's something that was promised to the generation before you, and it's also promised to the generation after you. To apprehend God then, at least in part, is to attempt to stand in that vast river we call time, where God not only inhabits it, but he transcends it. When we interact with each other, this is the thing. We just don't have a frame of reference for a relationship like this. We don't. We don't. And the myriad, the hundreds, the thousands of relationships that we end up having with human beings in the course of our lives all betray the reality of this other kind of relationship. It tricks us. In theology and, and philosophy, it's called anthropomorphism. It's when we, we project onto God the, 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 the traits of human beings. God is not like us. He's nothing like us. And so we're not really equipped to relate to him, to understand him. When we interact with each other, it's all so temporary, so tenuous. We barely know, we barely know if we say things to each other, whether that will stand today or even into tomorrow. Forget about a lifetime. We're just a bunch of covenant breakers. We barely know how to make promises, and then when we make promises, we rarely, if ever, keep them. And this is our experience. This is our experience with, with relationships built on something like covenant or promise. We're just broken in it. And I'm really, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm really struggling with this reality right now in my own life. I, I Just the temporariness of our relationships with each other. I mean, part of it is me, you know, spending almost every day trying to iron out, hammer out things like contracts, which, which, which have to do with us. And what is a contract? A contract is saying, I don't trust you, you don't trust me. Now, there's a saying, good, if you've heard, maybe you haven't, there's a saying called, good, good fences make good neighbors. This is, this is the whole premise of, of writing a good contract, is you want to say, look, Stuff's going to happen. You're not going to. You're saying you're going to do this now, but you're not going to do it. I'm saying this. I probably won't do it. So let's just be perfectly clear on what we will or will not do. And then have that be somehow legally binding because we cannot trust each other. That's what it comes down to. We, we know from a lifetime of experience that we cannot trust each other. This is why we make contracts. 
I think this is part of what makes humanity so screwed up. We can't build anything together. Because we can't really make promises to each other. Because even when we do make promises to each other, we never keep our word. And, and in my experience, most of what I see, especially from younger people, people who are younger than me, is that what they, they see that too. They, they see, like, a, they already see their parents, they, 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 they see their grandparents, they see the world around them, a lifetime of broken promises. And so you know what I see young people do? They say, I just won't make any promises at all. That's my response to that. I will, draw, I, I will, I will, I will under-promise and over-deliver. There's a saying now that's only come in our lifetime, under-promise, over-deliver. In other words, don't make promises. Surprise people by being faithful. Surprise people by, by, by doing something that, that, that they should have, could have been able to count on you for. But whatever you do, don't tell people that they could count on you, see? Never do that because you let them down and you don't want to live with that, you see. In my life, right now, but just, I mean, even over the last 10 years of our, our fledgling movement, where, where, where are so many of the people that we started with? Too many have gone. And, and many, I, 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 how, can I, how can I put a number, but many of them are gone because God has called them to go somewhere. And that, for that we rejoice. The dispersion, the sending of his people. And there is no breach of covenant. You see, because our covenant is to each other in the name of Jesus for the sake of the kingdom and his glory in the world. And anybody that, anybody that, that holds up that covenant anywhere on planet earth is still bound to us. But too many people are gone because they just lost their hearts, lost passion, gave up. They lost faith even. I read recently that, you know, you probably know this, but the, the Navy SEALs training is very difficult. I don't, I don't know if you've heard that. You guys should read more. Um, Navy SEALs, like special forces of the Navy, uh, that has to do with the water. Um, they, 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 their training is very difficult, and it's notoriously hard to pass this thing. About, about 20% of people that, that sign up uh, to go through the Navy SEAL training, which I assume you already think you're sort of strong and tough and made of something sterner stuff, and so you enter into that. About 20% of those people pass phase one, get through phase one. So one in five makes it. But what's interesting, what I just found out, was of the 80% that wash out, so that group of people, only 10% of that group, only 10% fail or wash out because they physically cannot keep up. The assumption I think we make on something like that is it's just so hard physically that people can't do it. And actually, that isn't the thing. 90% of people that wash out of that training wash out because of their heart. Because when you get, you think it'd be awesome to be a Navy SEAL, and then you get in the midst of it, and it's really hard, and the training's really hard, and it's pushing your mind. And people say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. It looked sexy on the brochure. It would be cool to say, I'm a Navy SEAL. But what it takes right now to actually be that thing, 90% of those people just cannot do it. 
It's not because they physically can't. It's something else. It has to do with their heart, their will, their motive. People lose heart. And I, it, it vexes me. It saddens me. But here again is the utter otherness of what it means to be in a friendship with God. And so his words to me, to us, are not just for now. They're not even just for tomorrow. They're forever. And when he speaks to us, he, he is not, he is, his words are echoing into the expanse of eternity. They're bigger than you. Bigger than me. Bigger than the underground. Bigger than our time. Bigger than our children and their children. And I'm trying really hard to wrap my mind around that. To, 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 to understand who it is that is speaking to me when he says, Be still, Brian. Trust me. Hold. Stand firm. trying to let that touch my heart. I need, I need him to fill me. Not, 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 just, not just my mind, but my heart, my, my strength. That this one that I hear speaking to me, this one that I, I read his words in these texts, the, this one that is, that is reaching out to me and to you is trustworthy. He's the only one who is trustworthy. And so I'm not worried about tomorrow anymore because tomorrow is the threshold of eternity it's nothing compared to the promises that God has made to you and me three things in scripture are eternal God you and me and God's word everything else this is what the scriptures say everything else will pass away except for God his word and us. This is what stands. This is also why the Bible is so important to us. Not because it's old or because it's new or because it's trendy or because it's ancient, but because it contains something that cannot and is not contained by time. God's eternal words are held in this book. And for that reason, it, is, it, is, it has got to be our most treasured possession in this world. It's also why I think it's very funny, almost comical, to listen to people, Christians, non-Christians, whatever, people interact in their time with something that is clear in Scripture but they want to cast doubt or dispersion on what's been made clear in Scripture as if the Scriptures were somehow old or ancient or antiquated, as if, God, as if it were possible for an eternal God to be antiquated. It's to misunderstand the nature of the very thing that you're interacting with. Take something like sexual ethics. In our time, people want to look at the Bible and they want to sort of like uh, uh, kind of have a side-eye stare at the, at the sort of antiquated sexual ethics of the Scriptures. As if to say what? One day you're going to stand before God and you're going to say, well, in our time, you see, we were progressive. 
Where were you? We're, we're talking, we're, let's just say, 10 million years from now, you stand before God in the throne, in, in, in his throne room of judgment, and you say, well, in our time, you know, we were progressive. We understood that those, those old notions of identity and sexuality were just something that we needed to let go of to show that we were in fashion, you see. I, I, I have to help you this morning and tell you that God is never antiquated. It is impossible for him to be antiquated because he, is as, he lives as much in our future as he does in our past. He is beyond all of that, eternally now, eternally new, eternally relevant, and, and your future. I mean, the only thing you need to really be concerned about in terms of the, the eternal life which is promised you, whether that is eternal grace and joy in his presence or eternal judgment and destruction, the, the eternal destiny of human beings comes down to this one person and his description of reality. It does not come down to your cultural milieu or what the, what the fad that the university was teaching this year or in your lifetime even. And so this word rings out, this word generation. It just, it just jumps off the page at me. And I can't escape it. I can't get away from it. This indictment that Jesus makes against a whole generation. A whole, they're not even there, but he's making an indictment against a whole generation because of this one thing. It's so ironic that our generation wants to criticize or question God on this or that. And every generation does it. Every generation has their unbelief, you see. And this indictment is about a whole generation, not about nine disciples in, in first century Palestine, not about the crowd that had formed around this one troubled boy, but about an entire generation. And you know why? Stay with me. I know this, I know this is pushing you a little bit. We're coming up on a story. Hang in there. <laughs> the one that they are interacting with the one that comes down off of the mountain of transfiguration and steps into this mess of failed faith, of demonic victory, that one that steps into that space is looking at them and he sees, he somehow does not just see them, he sees their whole generation. And he doesn't just see their generation, but I'm contending this morning that he sees the generation that came before them and he sees the generation that will come after them. And so he does not just speak to them in that moment, but he's pulling back. He is the eternal God speaking into the fullness of time in this one episode. I know you're not supposed to do it, but I, I, I compare my kids sometimes. It's hard not to. I have six of them. They're around me all the time. They do similar things and then dissimilar things. And so you, you, it's hard not to be like, you know, be like your brother. Don't be like your brother. Be like your sister. Don't be like your sister. Uh, you know, just to sort of see comparisons. And you're not supposed to do that. But it's almost impossible not to because that's my framework, you see, as a father. I see their behavior. It's happening so close together, so side by side. It's almost impossible not to compare them because that's my vantage point. These six lives 
growing up together, side by side. And so I see them together, and because I see them together, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible not to make comparisons. And I think that's what's happening to Jesus right now. He's, he sees many generations in this moment. And so he's, he's making a comparison. This, the person of Jesus, the transfigured, only hours before, who was glowing in the light of God's eternal presence around him, who was talking to Moses, who's supposed to be dead, and Elijah, who's supposed to be dead. This is, this is the person that just came off, off that mountain doing that, is now speaking. This eternal one is now speaking. He was just talking to Moses and Elijah. Now he's talking to Peter, James, and John. He is more than we thought he was. Who is well, the question we're supposed to be answering? Who is Jesus? That's, this, that's this, the theme of this series. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal God. He is the ageless one. He is from eternity to eternity. Isaiah 43, from eternity to eternity, I am God. This is the one who comes down the mountain. This is the one who stands before a boy, troubled, tormented, and a father, equally troubled. And disciples who stand there, having abandoned their faith so soon having walked away from the covenant promise that God has made to them to give them authority, failing to believe in it anymore. Well, because he's been gone for 24 hours. So surely that isn't real anymore. And so he talks to Moses and Elijah. And then he talks to Peter, James, and John. And now he talks to you. In one moment, he's glorified in heaven. In the next moment, he's battling the devil on earth. He is here in our now. He is there in the past. He is there in the future. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. You, you have no idea who it is you have pledged your life to. You cannot fathom his greatness. His fierceness, his perfection, the scope, the span of this one who we call Jesus. We have given him this name. And in that name, somehow, the hope of heaven, the hope of salvation for every human being is contained because it holds so much more than our minds can understand. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to show you this painting which I thought was important. It was, it was, I, don't, I don't have a lot to say about it except that it influenced me in, in thinking about and preparing uh, for this, this talk this morning. This is Raphael, a 16th century Renaissance, high Renaissance painter. This was the last painting he ever painted. He painted, he literally finished the brushstrokes and died. This is, this is the, the final great work of a great Renaissance Italian painter. And this is, this is, he, this is Raphael's choice to merge together these two stories, the story of the transfiguration. This, this painting is called the Transfiguration. And it was commissioned at the time by the Pope to, to give, give us a painting of transfiguration. But Ra what Raphael gives the world instead, the gift that he gives, is this comparison, this juxtaposition between the glorified Jesus and the failure of the nine disciples. If you see in the lower scene, which is sort of shrouded in darkness, and, the, and the, the, the scene above, which is full of light and openness. And there is Peter, James, and John sort of, you know, hiding their faces from the glory. There is Moses on the right holding the law. 
Elijah on the left and this, this depiction of this extraordinary light-filled moment. And beneath, the nine disciples on the left who are struggling to cast out the demon and the boy that cannot do it. The boy who stands with his arms, arm up and his other arm down and the father who's, who's himself in equal turmoil. Can anyone help us? And these two stories are meant to be together. They're meant to be understood together, felt together, experienced together, seen, if you will, with our eyes, together. Because on the one hand, there is the greatness of God. And if you go back to just the beginning of chapter 9, we're still in chapter 9. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, it's ascending. And in the ascending, they go with all this authority and power. And what happens? They see, they see the defeat of evil before their very eyes. They see their own voices having the power of God and they're, and they're astounded at the power that God has deposited in them. And here he is just a few days later and they, they, it's all gone. And that same one that gave them authority, which, is, which even when he gave them their, their authority, he just looked like a great teacher, a miracle worker. But this is who he really was. This is one of those extraordinary moments where the, the truth about Jesus isn't quite tucked in and it seeps out. And they see, they see, a few of them see who he is for real, a glimpse of who he is. And yet in us there is this brokenness in our generation, an inability to hold on to the authority he's given us. And so Jesus remembers, somehow he remembers the generation that Moses walked with. And by the way, that, that, that phrase, you, you perverse, you unbelieving generation, is from Deuteronomy 32. He was just talking to Moses, and I don't know, were they talking about his generation and how they were unbelieving? And now he comes down and it's in his mind because he's, I'm telling you, this is the eternal God seen beyond just this time and space. He remembers Elijah and Elijah's faith in his generation. He remembers the lack of faith in Moses' generation. He was there! Somehow he sees and knows the generations which are to come even. And he's comparing them, you see. He's comparing their generation with those and these. And he can speak with authority about this generation. It's not whimsical. It's not critical, it's an honest appraisal. And from that seat of clarity, from that vantage point, he indicts them, their whole generation, you unbelieving generation. This is why he's so frustrated, because he sees a whole generation, not just those nine people, a whole generation who cannot keep their promises, who, who carry integrity and authority in leaky buckets. Listen to me. He gives them authority, and it just leaks out. 24 hours later, it's gone. And it's a generational problem. And maybe at some level, we should be encouraged. He's not just, he's not just mad at them. He's, he's saying, this is a problem. This, this, this is bigger than you, guys. It's just the air you breathe. It's the, it's the, you're a product of your time. And I think he's worried. That's why the next thing that comes out of his mouth, the, the, the question that haunts this text, the question that haunts this text is, how long will I be with you? How long will I stay with you? 
what's, what's, what's the logic there? The logic is, oh, you guys, I give you this authority, this faith. You can't believe it. You, you let go of it. It's 24 hours. It's all leaked out, and I won't be here forever. I won't be able to physically come down the mountain and deal with this father and the son. And what will they do then? What will the demon-tormented people of the, of the generations which are to come, what will they do when I am not physically present to come and do it? And all they have is you. When all they have is you. And you can't even believe me for a week. What will they do? It's an emotional question expressing frustration as much as it's a practical statement uncovering a real problem. What are you going to do when I'm gone? When you can't just wait for me to come down the mountain. When a father like this one cannot bring his son directly to me anymore, he can only bring his son to you. What will you do when all the world has is you? And I want to really think about that this morning. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about, get, 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 out, of, get out of the disciples, get out of first century Palestine. Let's, let's come to you, to your life, your microchurch, this time. Your time, your world, your family, your work, your neighborhood, your mission, your microchurch. Guys, the impotence of unbelief in the church is a much more serious thing than we imagine. We can raise lots of money. We can build beautiful buildings, both of things that I'd be happy to do right about now. Um, we can hire armies of staff. We can marshal volunteers by the thousand. We can publish and paint a picture of the church as formidable. I want you to hear, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. We can do all that. But if we cannot cure a demon-tormented boy and return him to his grieving father, then it's all a fraud. It's all a fraud. I think of that line in Macbeth. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Or that line in 1 Corinthians, a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal, without the power of exerted love in the world that sets people free and brings the kingdom into just one life, it's all for nothing. The exercise of redemptive power and authority is the critical skill that he knows he must pass on before he leaves. The exercise of redemptive power and authority is the critical skill he knows he must pass on before he leaves. And this one boy, in this one boy, in the story of this one boy, we see the whole of the work of the kingdom of God. The glorification of Jesus as they put their faith in him. The defeat of, the, of evil as its grip and curse is loosed over the oppressed boy. The reconciliation of human beings to God and to each other in the returning back of the son to his father. It's all right there. This is the kingdom. If you cannot do this, 
If we cannot do this, then we cannot be. I know this is what he's feeling in this moment. Then you cannot be my apostles in the world. What is the future of my church if you cannot do this? Who is Jesus? He is the eternal God. And what is Jesus doing? Once again, pay attention. Here's what he's doing. He's caring for children. Once again, he gains easy victory over demonic powers. Once again, he heals body and mind. Once again, he reconciles and restores a broken family. It's a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture of ministry itself. It's a picture of what we, most of us in this room, have have said, my life, my blood for this thing. This is it. This is what we do. And once again, his closest friends doubt that they can do it. They stop believing that that authority can be transferred to them and used. And this grieves Jesus deeply. I think it still grieves him. Because this is not just what he is doing that day. It is not a fashion. It is an eternal revelation. This is what the Father does. This is what the Father feels. This is what matters. This alone is what will bring you into intimacy with him and others too. This alone matters. And if we cannot do this, then what are we doing? What are we doing? Who cares about our buildings? Who cares about how big our services are or how, 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 how uh, great our resources are? Who cares about our, our, our insights into, into theology or truths if, if a tormented boy cannot be set free from evil and reconciled and God praised and people brought back into relationship with him. At one level, this is the hardest thing that human beings can do. On another level, it is actually the easiest thing that Christians do. This is just like, this is our bread and butter. Because all that it takes is faith, not great skill. It just takes a dependent relationship and and plugging the leaks in our buckets so that that authority stays with us, that belief stays with us. And he's saying, you have to learn to do this without me physically present. You have to learn to believe without me physically here. that's 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 our mandate for our time. Jesus is not physically here with me right now. He's not in my prayer closet when I go to seek him. He's not physically there. What am I expected to do? I am expected to apprehend him by faith. And this is how the kingdom advances well beyond the scope of the incarnation. What will happen when I leave? Will you forget? Will your children forget? Consider this for a second. This indictment is not against one disciple, like I said, but it's against an entire generation. A way of being and seeing the world. A way that resists belief and hope. A way that resists what he would later call childlike faith. It's, it's, it's a more cynical view of the world, you see. And we think that's mature. You know, we think that's sort of advanced. To be someone that says, well, we'll see if that works. And so we enter into life with a certain amount of cynicism because our generation demands it, because our generation rewards cynicism. 
our generation rewards the skeptic. We think the skeptic is sort of wise, you see. And again, I think this is part of what Jesus cries out against. That isn't powerful. That's impotent. Is the only thing he's saying. Faith in me, a belief that this covenant which I have made with you about authority and power, which I have given to you, it's to believe that tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now and a year from now and at the end of your lifetime, I am still keeping that promise to you. And never will I break that promise, never could I break that promise. But if one day you believed and saw me at work in your life, then all days I will be at work in your life. It is trust in him that is powerful. Not that dark, skeptical, cynical thing which we call wisdom. Which so impresses us, you see. It's a flaw in our generation. It's this presiding notion that Jesus is upset with. Not you particularly, not me particularly, but the generation we're a part of. We're supposed to somehow separate ourselves. We're supposed to create another kind of generation, a new generation. And this too is enumerated in Scripture. This too is expressed in Scripture, this hope of God that there would be such a thing as a believing generation. It's possible. It exists in the heart and mind of God. But what is a generation? Let let me just define that for a second for you. I think a generation, at least the way it's being used here, is a culture, and you understand probably the word culture better. So a culture, sort of the way things are done, a culture defined by time. So not defined by geography or defined by ethnicity or something like that, but it's defined by a time in which you live. So a good example of this would be uh, my kids are total digital natives. Some of you in here are total digital natives. You've grown up with smartphones in your hand, and that creates a culture, and you are a product of your time. No matter your ethnicity, no matter, no matter, no matter even to some degree where you are in the world, you still, we still have this now, this new sort of culture that, that, is, that, is, that is defined by, shaped by this digital reality. And... We do it, other people do it, and that creates a way, a culture, which exists in our time and transcends borders and boundaries. I took a trip with my four boys recently. We, I, I think I told you we, we just tried to find a place that had snow, and so we flew uh, into to Pennsylvania because that was the cheapest flight we could find. So we flew to Pittsburgh, and then we drove north, and we ended up in Scranton, Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is a real place. For those of you that watch The Office, it's a real place. So we were in Scranton, and um, we found this cool place to sled, and it was just an, it was an amazing time. We found a crappy hotel. We all packed in there. It was, the hotel room was just full of farts. It was like lots of boys. One bathroom, it was, by, by day two, it was just bad. Um, but we had a great time. We went and saw a movie, um, <clears throat> and as we were leaving the movie, there's, of course, there's all these cars that are covered with snow. And I had not been noticing this, but Skylar was like drawing on the cars. He just kept, every time, every time he would see a car covered with snow, he would go draw something on it. And he had been doing this the whole trip, but I never really paid attention to what he was drawing. And so as we're coming out of the movie theaters, he's just always a few steps behind us because he's drawing something on the cars in, out of the snow, you know, because they're covered with snow, so he just draws something on their window. And so the other boys are snickering, and they're like, Dad, you need to say something to Skylar. And I said, why? They, they say, because what he's drawing on these cars. And Skylar's the little one. So, you know, he gets a little bit of grace, but even, even the other boys 
which are a perverse generation. Um, <clears throat> they're like, Dad, you need to talk to Skylar. And I'm like, what? So I go, look, and I don't know how to say this. Please forgive me. We can scratch it from the, the recording. Pause now. Okay. Um, he was drawing wieners on, the, on, on all the cars. Or whatever euphemism you use. So here's the problem. He was, I think, he was just trying to do something he thought his, bro his brothers would think was funny. And the truth is, all, the whole time we were together, they did think it was funny. And they were sort of encouraging him to do it. So he kept doing it. And every time they would do it, he would do it, they would all laugh. This is how, this is how a generation is shaped, you see. It's a, it's a feedback loop. It's a reward mechanism for some sort of perverse behavior. I think it's a good example because this is a perverse behavior. Perhaps not the worst perverse behavior, but it is probably not perfectly in line with God's will for young boys. I think we can agree on that. However, the other boys were laughing. They found it funny all the way from the college age down to middle school. All found it very funny. And I'm, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be honest and self-disclose. I may have also laughed a little bit. <laughs> Skylar, you cannot draw wieners on people's car. This is how it happens. A generation of Sanders boys who fill in the blank. And there are many ways that we get off course and all of a sudden that becomes just the way we are. That's the way we do things. I see it. What makes a generation perverse is that it forgets time. It does not look back or forward. It only lives and looks for the fashion, you see. When morality, ethics, and theology is reduced to fashion, we are dead in the water. If my boys were to think past and think forward, they would have a different point of view about that behavior becoming a part of their culture and their generation. But because we're only in the now of what we think is okay or acceptable now, what is in fashion now? And make no mistake, ethics are a matter of fashion. We treat them like that. I think this is part of what Jesus is saying. that We need to break somehow out of this confines of the now, see beyond as he does, to see the generation we're a part of and to be a part of a different kind of generation. I think we all need to get tattoos. So the guys who already have tattoos are clapping. Finally, some affirmation. It's not so much the, the tattoo itself. That's not important. I'm not telling you to get tattoos. What, what, what I think is important 
What I do think I wish I could replicate in us and in our generation is that we would put upon ourselves something that is permanent. Uh, I, was, I, I was talking to somebody, a close friend, who was actually thinking about getting their first tattoo. And it's a very stressful... Does anyone... Who has a tattoo? Let me just see. Who has, currently has a tattoo? Okay, that's a lot of you. And do you remember... The, the, the step from not having a tattoo to get it. So aside from being drunk or in Tijuana or something like that, do you remember being aware of wanting to get a tattoo and the, the anxiety that created? Do you remember that? Should I do it? It's forever. Oh my gosh. And so here's what some of you did. You put it on your ankle or tramp stamp or whatever you, you needed to do <laughs> where no one could see it. That was your approach. Some of you were bold. You went for it. You just went for the full breastplate or the neck or whatever. But most of us struggle with that decision. You would struggle with that decision because of its permanence. That's the problem. And yet, if someone were to tell you, just get a temporary tattoo, what would you say? That's ridiculous. That's like, what? That's the whole point is that it is forever. The whole point is that you can't take it off, not easily at least. And we're totally petrified by permanence. A tattoo is a covenant you make with your skin. And it's hard for some of us because if we're not just doing it impulsively, if we're really thinking it through, then actually we struggle because we're just not used to making promises. We're not used to our decisions extending beyond the now, extending beyond this time, much into future time. We're very, very uncomfortable. The cost, the pain, the fear, the unknown of it, it's a promise we're making, and we don't like making those kinds of promises. Now, I have one tattoo. You can see it. And this tattoo I got, most of you know the story, I got it because of Eve. I got it with Eve because Eve, I think since she could talk, wanted a tattoo uh, and, ha- and was, was pretty, uh, pretty committed to, to harassing me about getting a tattoo since she could talk. And so when she started getting up around 16-ish where people would tattoo her if they had my consent, she would hit me every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. Dad, dad, let's get a tattoo, let's get a tattoo. So this is a, it was a long saga, a long journey. And so I said, okay, we'll do it, but I'm going to do it with you. So it's something that we do together. And you need to really think and pray and contemplate what that thing is going to be on you because I want it to be something that is permanent in a philosophical sense. And so some of you know and maybe have seen that what Eve got all along this arm is a, just a Greek phrase which, says, which means daughter of God. This, is, this was our agreement. And what I like about that and the reason why I was in the end okay with it is because it's something that I wanted her to never forget. Because the, the, the comparison there between a tattoo, which is permanent, which we take upon our bodies, which hurts, but it does not come off, and the promises that God make, that has made and does continue to make to us, is very symbiotic. I wanted this young girl who I could just see on this crazy journey of belief and unbelief, of obedience and disobedience, of creativity and rebellion, who's on this tremendous journey that the first tattoo she would have, permanent professional tattoo, would be this reminder of a covenant promise that God has made to her.
And in the same way, I thought, okay, well, for me, what's something I want to never forget, to remember? So these, these marks represent my six kids, a promise I've made to them. I never want to not remember that I am their father. I never want there to be a day or moment where I don't remember that these lives have been at least some level entrusted to me. And so I'm okay with the permanence of that, that one thing. Now, I hated it. I'm going to be honest with you. It hurt like a butthole. I just sat there like, this sucks so bad. I I wanted to punch the guy the whole time. I was just like, everything inside me was like, this person is hurting you, hurt him back. (laughs) It was my animal brain was just saying, don't let him do that. Look, he's doing it again. Do something. She's over there. I think this is a more tender area. She's over there grinning, laughing. It doesn't hurt at all. It doesn't hurt at all. I'm like, what? (laughs) She just loved it, wanted it. It was that impulsiveness that she had. But what I wanted it to be was permanent forever. My second, my, my first daughter, my other daughter... JL just got married, uh, as Shandra said earlier. And, um, you know, it was great. And I, I love Johnny. And she, the, the whole thing was a, was a pretty interesting experience. I mean, JL got her car stolen a few days before the wedding. And then Eve got in a car accident the day of the wedding. It was just, it was just that these things happen. But through it all, people kept asking me, uh, you know, are you okay? Are you going to be okay? Because I was, I was officiating the wedding, and I, I did their premarital counseling, so I was very integrated. I was also trying to be the wedding coordinator and, and just running around trying to save money or whatever. Um, and I, I, wasn't, I was confused at what I was supposed to be feeling. It was everyone's like, are you going to be okay? I had people say, no, you can't do the wedding. You're going to break down. And I just, I, I was, I'm like, oh, maybe I will. I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling. And even during the reception, you know, they're dancing, everyone's having a good time. I just felt happy. I just felt content. We're so afraid to make promises to each other. We're so afraid to make covenant. And yet, we want so badly to be free, you know, to not be, not be bound by promises, to be able to come and go and and if we tell people that we'll be there, then we have to be there. If we th- I mean, even something like next week, you're, you're scared, like, 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 like two weeks from now. This is why when, you, when, you, when, we, when we run a conference, none of you people can sign up until the week of because you're just so scared of making some promise that you're going to be at a conference a month from now. That's so outrageous. <laughs> you know? The friend says, you want to you know, come to my party? And my thing is like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'll be. I don't know what will be happening. I don't, want to be, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be bound to it, you see. I don't, I don't want to be tied up. And what are we watching? We watch a wedding. We're watching two people be bound to each other. We're watching people covenant, commit. And to me, it's just something to be celebrated. I, I'm, not, I'm not upset. I'm not emotional. I'm, I'm happy. I'm proud of my daughter. I'm proud of Johnny. I'm proud. I'm proud that people are, this is what the church is. This is what the church is made of. This, this is what makes the kingdom come. It does not come any other way. God never speaks to us without making a promise. And yet we're so weak at this. 
We barely can promise anything beyond tomorrow. And if, and if someone came to you today and said, listen, uh, I have a friend or a son, he's sort of tormented by an evil spirit, can I bring him to you? You might say something like, well, I can't make any promises. I'll try. It's not like the disciples didn't try. That's not the issue. The issue is they didn't believe. And that's what frustrates Jesus. Yeah, maybe God's used me from that way before, but I, can't, I don't know. I can't make any promises. Who can say? I don't want you to expect anything of me. And so our human relationships are so weak. The ties that bind us are so, so light. They're so, they're, they're, so, they're so frail. We can't do anything together. And I watch two people make a covenant and they say, this is for life. And, and I stress that over and over. When I talk to them, I just want them to know, this is, you, you will die in this covenant. And, and I am, I am, I am going to do everything within my power to make sure that you keep this. You've got to know what you're doing. I know people enter into marriage in a cavalier way, but if you really enter into marriage the way it's supposed to be entered into, it is the very fabric of what the kingdom is made of. And I'm not just talking about marriage like some, some sexual union. I'm talking about the church in general. I'm talking about what makes us God's people is that we promise ourselves to each other. And it's got to go beyond just 24 hours from now. We have to learn to do this. This is a part of what I think it means when he says to have faith. Because this question is, is just ringing in, in, in this text. Like, okay, well, then, then how do I not lose my faith? How do I make sure that I maintain, that, that, my, that my bucket does not leak? And part of it is, I think, through making promises, binding ourselves to one another. There is this, this Celtic practice in marriage where they would literally, what you, the phrase, tie the knot, where the hands of the bride and the groom would be tied together. It is a binding of two lives, two people, their, 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 their effective, active wills being tied into one hand. And when Jesus talked to Peter about building his church, stay with me, when he talked to to Peter about building his church, about a new generation who would seek and know him. He said this. This is what he said to Peter. Whoever you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Upon this rock, he said, I will build my church. And, and, that's one statement. I will build my church on what? On people who can bind things together and who can loose things. And when you bind something when you draw something into covenant, heaven itself witnesses and agrees with that covenant. Eternity itself comes to bear upon that human contract. And likewise, there are things that bind us which should not bind us in this world. There are things, make no mistake, we are tied in to things and to people. But there are too often evil and unhealthy ties that bind us. And he's saying equally, I will give you power. What will build my church is a cutting of those ties, a loosing of those binds, and a binding together of people in something that is holy and that builds the kingdom of God. It is to touch the eternal. It is a tethering of our work and our words to something outside of time. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying to Peter. That when you do something in this world, it will be tethering it to the eternal. Your words will be a lot like my words because they will extend beyond this one moment in time and space. They will, they will expand to fill the generations. That's possible. I'm not saying everything that you do or say is supposed to be like that, but there are things that you will do and say which will build his church. And the gates of hell, he said, will not prevail against it. 
It's still an active looting of the demonic, a cutting of those ties, and a binding in covenant love with God and with each other. Where is this in our lives? I'm going to invite up the worship team. What is the alternative to this perverse and unbelieving generation? It is a believing generation which is aligned to the heart and will of God. This is my prayer for you this week. It's my prayer for us as we go forward into the unknown of our own movement's future. And just like we can share unbelief with a generation, we can share faith too. It's possible for us to bind ourselves with one another in a holy and healthy way, to make covenant with one another for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our city, for the sake of the population that God has called you to. You know, you know who they are. You, you can hold them in your mind right now. I'm asking you, I'm begging you this morning to consider making covenant, at least in your heart, if not to them personally, that, those people that you've been called to, that population. I'm asking you to make covenant again with us, with your, with your, with your colleagues, with your fellow microchurch leaders and fellow microchurch missionaries that are part of not just this movement, not just the underground, but everyone who does the will and work of God in this city is our family. Everyone who is engaging darkness, who is stepping off the mountain of transfiguration into the place of demonic torment and saying, we're here and we bring the authority of God. We bring the name of Jesus. Anyone who does that in this city is our family. And yes, I'm asking you to make covenant with them, with us, to not run away, to not quit, to not lose heart, to not grow faint, to not stumble, to not give up on your ethics or your morality. talking to Leanne the other day and she was she told me a story about them the her team doing they do street outreach maybe every other week and they're particularly interested in a certain group of people so they look for them and they 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 ran into to someone who introduced himself as James dresses the woman and they they started talking and interacting and he just opened up talked about his childhood a little bit and 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 really was vulnerable and shared some extreme pain and trauma with them just like that on the street so I think I think Leanne and Dan were both there and they 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 just said, Well can we pray for you? So they took hands and there they are on the street on Nebraska, I think, and they're just praying. I mean that alone is enough. So you don't need a building. 
You don't need money. You don't need leaders or structure. You don't need a website. You don't need Twitter followers to get in your car to go find someone who might just maybe be crying out for God. And so they're as they're praying, this is how Leanne tells the story, as they're praying, she can sort of see behind Dan and she sees this, this figure coming towards them. A big man, a sort of imposing figure. And he's coming. And he's coming hard and fast. And the closer he gets, she can't, you know, I think Dan may have been praying. And, you know, Dan, when he prays, he gets, you know, he's, he's, still, he's still a good Pentecostal boy. And so he's into it. And, uh, and uh, so he, she can't get his attention. She sees this. But, but they have people praying for them in a car nearby. I think Veronica, someone else. And they, they, they see the danger too, you see. So they sort of pull up and put their lights on, you know. What's going on? Because he's coming. He's coming to break up their huddle or hurt somebody. or They, they don't know. And she, of course, to Leanne's mind, she thinks Dan's going to get it. You know, he's going to get it in the back of the head or something like that. And here comes this big imposing man who just comes rushing into them, rushing towards them. And this, this at least this is how she told the story. He, he, he came and, and this sort of fear is welling up, what's going to happen? And as soon as he gets there and hits their circle, he reaches out his hands, he takes their hands and he says, I need God too. Pray for me. So the four of them prayed on Nebraska for God to make himself known. And there was openness and vulnerability and the church was formed. A temporary church was formed there on Nebraska. And heaven and earth were touching, kissing, transfigured Jesus. Evil defeating Jesus came to bear upon that moment. And there's so much to say or think about that. I mean, we're, we're afraid, you see, of those people out there when we are, our hearts ought to be open. We ought not to be afraid. We ought to know and stand with authority. And I'm proud of them because they go. I'm proud of them because they, they take the simplest things we do, which are the most powerful things we do. And that's what makes us, that's what makes us the kingdom. That's what makes us a movement. Not, not a building, not our money. Not, not, not me, not any leaders. It's you doing that. If you keep doing that in the city and draw people into it, we will never die. Our movement will never, ever die. But I had a second conversation with Leanne. I think really only minutes after that one. And she said, you know, Brian, I wonder sometimes, I worry sometimes that I'll make it. That I, how, how will I be able to keep doing this? How do people keep going in this ministry? Because there are days, and you know what I mean, there are days. Just anything else sounds better than this. And we fantasize about doing something else. Because it's hard to be outside of our generation. It's easier to be a part of the perverse and unbelieving generation. You fit. You get laughs and accolades. How do I do it? How do we survive? And this is, this is, this is, 
the question I want to ask us this morning. And then maybe just bow your heads with me. How will we persevere? Since my youth, the psalmist said, God, you have taught me. To this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. And even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, until I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. Who is like you, O oh God? Jesus, I don't have an answer to the question this morning. I am not some great teacher that can explain these mysteries. All I know to do right now is to pray. To ask you to give us faith. And even this story, which is when it's told by Mark, the Father says, help my unbelief. And so I pray that prayer for us this morning. Where our faith has leaked out, where it has flagged or failed, God, replace it, replenish it. Help our unbelief this morning. God, I'm asking that you would give us an awareness of your eternal covenant which you have made with us, the promise that if we would go into the world in your name that you would give us all authority and power. That you would give us authority over evil spirits. That you would give us the authority to heal. That you would give us the authority to reconcile people to each other. Forgive us, Lord, for believing that that comes and goes. That sometimes you give that to us and sometimes you don't want to give that to us. Forgive us, Lord, for treating you like you're one of our human friends who changed your mind and cannot be counted on. And I ask for an outpouring of faith in this room right now. Wherever it is that we need it today, that you would give it today. But more than that, God, I'm asking that you would make us a generation of people who believe and pass that belief on to our children. I pray for our children who are alive and known to us now and many who are not yet born. I pray for that second generation and third, that they would have faith that moves mountains, that they would be powerful beyond words. That they would never walk in fear. That they would never bow down to this culture or this world. That our kids would be the ones that walk into that promised land with you. Pray for those who are to come. We ask, Lord, that you would help us hold, hold fast, hold firm. That we would tattoo on our hearts this promise that you have made to us and ours in return to you. The night he was betrayed, Jesus, after he gave thanks, 
took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take it and eat it to remember me. And even in this night, even at this table, he was thinking about eternity. He was thinking about generations to come. He was thinking about us and our children and our children's children. The same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it also to remember me. I don't really know what is supposed to happen next, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to open your hearts. I'm asking you, if you're, if you're supposed to right now, to verbalize some kind of covenant to God. I, I, I just think, maybe, maybe ask Him, Lord, is there a promise you want me to make to someone? Maybe it's something that you say in prayer. Maybe it's something you need to go find them when this is over and go say it to their face. Maybe maybe this morning as we come, we just say, Lord, make us this generation that believes. Make us a generation that seeks your face. Never forgets your covenant to us. So when you're ready, this is the body and blood of Jesus given for you.